out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Indeed, we are. Hello and welcome. This is The C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. I'm with you for the next, I don't know, 60-odd minutes. As you know, we always play the finest in indie pop. But we also love a special guest. This week it's going to be the turn of the writer and comedian Carl Mims, who I spoke to very recently to find out more about life, love, poetry and all the other kind of groovy stuff. So this is the interview. Um, yes, and after a bit of casual chat, as you do in the world of showbiz, um, yes, we started to uh, talk about those early formative years. And this is the interview. Make notes, I will test you at the end just to make sure you are paying attention. Okay, Cal, save this for my boredom. I think I was always into comedy. I remember having joke books when I was about five or six, and because I was very shy um, and very quiet at school, and my dad was disabled. Um, so I had quite a weird home life, a quite, um, I'd say a sad home life in a lot of ways. I mean, there was a lot of love in the family, but, you know, having a disabled dad was quite hard work. And so I think, and I think it probably happens with a lot of people that get into comedy, that comedy is a, is a way of um, maybe compensating for, you know, a shyness or a lack of. So I found that I could make people laugh. I was very quiet, but when I spoke to people, I could make them laugh. I had you know, I guess comedic ideas come into my head. So I had joke books from quite an early age and I didn't really know why. I just knew that I liked comedy. And I used to watch things like Dave Allen and the two Ronnies with dad and he loved them and adored them as much as I did. And and, and that was a real bonding thing because my dad was in a lot of pain a lot of the time and was very unhappy and very depressed a lot of the time too. But he would laugh at the two Ronnies. He would laugh at Dave Allen and I would laugh with him. And I've, some of my fondest memories are laughing till I cried uh, at jokes I probably didn't understand. Um, so comedy for me, I think, maybe had a magic quality. It had something that was, you know, that was bigger than just making people laugh. It, it sort of brought people together. And it carried on. I guess in my teens, I was the perfect age. I was born in 1970. So I was the perfect age, maybe a bit too young in some respects. But when the birth alternative comedy came along i was 12 13 and um you know the young ones meant the world um i love not the nine o'clock news it's one of the few shows my dad didn't like so if i wanted to watch that it would have to be when dad was poorly enough to not be around um and i guess from there yeah it was it was also i, I discovered radio 4 comedy um when i was about 14 i found a radio um just that had been dumped and I found Radio 4 on it and there was things like the cabaret upstairs and loose ends and radioactive and all these wonderful shows and things like I'm sorry I'll read that again and repeats of old classic stuff like Hancock so by the time I was about 15 I was taping stuff off the radio I had, I had endless C60s and C, C90s of of comedy and I just would listen to it again and again and again and again um not with any idea that I was going to become a comedian just that my home life was fairly unhappy and it was it was my thing so that's my teen years <laughs> yes that's the teen so where you where did you where were you where did you grow up um i was born in bungie um in suffolk so i'm actually a suffolk boy all this normal for norfolk stuff i'm actually one of i'm a traitor from the other side but um uh, i grew up uh, in bungie and my dad died when i was 10 and after that we moved to great yarmouth um 
so I spent my deformative years in um, Great Yarmouth. Um, so, you know, I've, I've and Bungie is so close to the Norfolk border that I never felt we were part of Suffolk anyway. I always felt very drawn to Norwich and I supported Norwich City and, you know, a day out would be to Norwich. It was never the idea of going to Ipswich, it'd be horrible. Um, so yeah, I went, I went to, I went to Great Yarmouth High, um, and, uh, left there and didn't, I went to college for about two months, but I was just in a, I was in a really odd headspace then. My home life was fairly chaotic. I had a pretty mad stepdad. He wasn't a particularly nice guy and I couldn't really do the, the whole college thing. So I left and I got a job in a factory. And in that factory was where I met um, Nigel Woolston, who is still the Nimmo Twins um, sound man, sound and lights guy. And he was the one first person that sort of saw something in me, the way I talked and the way I was in the factory, which is very quiet. And when I think you should come up to Norwich and meet some friends of mine. And I saw my very first play and I met my very first actors <laughs> and my very first gay people and my very first flamboyant people and my very first writers. And it was like, boom, all these lights went on in my head. And I thought... I don't know what I want to do, but I want to be involved in this. I want something to do with the arts because the arts was uh, was this lovely, wonderful, light, colourful, joyful, camp, creative thing. And it was it was 180 degrees from my home life in Great Yarmouth. And as soon as I saw that life belt hove interview, I grabbed it with both hands, and uh, I've I've been <laughs> I've been keeping a very firm hold of it ever since. Yes. So what was Yarmouth like as a teenager? Because obviously I sort of grew up in Suffolk, in Metfield, which was even more sort of, it was just a village and went to Stradbrook and all that kind of business. So there wasn't, and looking back on that, there wasn't a huge amount of opportunities or uh, inspirational aspiration. You know, mm-hmm. we were sort of, you know, if you're a boy, you would sort of go on a farm or in a factory. And if you're a woman, you would go into the ch- either the chicken factory, if you're really lucky, or the sure. je- jeans factory. And then you got pregnant and had babies and were a housewife. So that was the kind of basically, the careers office must have just, you know god it must be the best job in the world so yeah so but yarmouth obviously is a lot a lot more buzzy and busy than 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 bungie and obviously you can be on your own in a place like that without feeling well you could feel lonely but you also had that summer trade of people suddenly coming to spend their holidays in your town sure i mean bungie was exactly that bungie you mentioned before the chicken factory i mean so many people that i knew worked at Buxted's, you know, that was that was a three route. Or you went to Richard Clay, where my dad worked when he was when he was able-bodied, Richard Clay the Chaucer Press, which was like that was the place. But in Great Yarmouth in the 80s, I mean Great Yarmouth when I moved there and, and certainly in the 80s was a boom town because all the oil money was there. Um, and it was buzzy. But the thing that really um certainly in my later teens, when I was 16, 17, 18, was the fact that it had the art college there. Um, and the art college gave it a population of two, three hundred kids who were creative, who were flamboyant, who were forming bands, who were putting on club nights with alternative music, who were the, you know, the weird looking kids you saw around town with the spiky hair and the mad clothes and holding the big A1 folders. And there was a pub called the Oakwoods, which recently, very recently, in fact, I read on the EDP, got bust because they discovered it, it was a massive cannabis farm. It's been boarded up for years. But in the 80s, it was the pub. And you'd get every sub-tribe of alternative living in there. So you'd get your punks, your goths, your greasers, and your hippies, and your weirdos. And it was a place that, again, was an, an oasis of creativity and an oasis of difference in what was quite a... It's a traditional seaside town. 
and there isn't much alternative alternative stuff there. I mean, certainly since the the art college um, really sadly closed, that took that took the life out of it. I think because it only takes two or three hundred people in a town that size to knock it on its axis a bit and to give it a little bit of flavour and to and you know to to just plant the seeds of creativity. So for me, the Oakwoods in Great Yarmouth was where I kind of found my tribe. Um, and again, in there, there was people that were doing music. There was people that were fashion designers, people that were trying to be writers, people that, you know, musicians, what have you. So there was always um, uh, a kind of population of, of creative people. And I, I'd like to think that in Yarmouth now, I and mean, I make Yarmouth is very often the part of jokes in my shows. But I do like to think that there's kids like me growing up in Great Yarmouth who are looking for something, you know, a little bit left field. I'm sure there are probably little clubs and pubs and corners where they can find fellow fellow people like that but for me yeah the Oakwoods in Great Yarmouth working in the factory and then coming up to Norwich as I said and going to the Wensum Lodge seeing my first play going to Norwich Arts Centre and seeing bands and just realizing oh this thing called the arts this tiny little word but it's got so much so much power and so much meaning of it that was the thing that you know I just I was being drawn more and more to because I knew it was the escape from factory life and dull life Yes. Well, which is often the way that most artists or even sports people sort of grow up with that level of desperation, really, isn't it? There's no totally, problem. yeah. So so the 80s, remember, you know, we had Thatch, didn't we? We had the Miners, we had Red we Wedge, we had all that kind of stuff, as well as, you know, the, the wonderful world that is kind of the mainstream sort of, you know, Wham and Spandau Ballet and Duran Duran. So the, the 80s, because we're interviewing a lot of those kind of bands, going unemployed wasn't really a big thing. It was almost like, well, that's what you do when you're a certain age, because there wasn't many opportunities and there was things like the job seekers allowance and enterprise allowance so that gave a lot of people a one-year kind of window to say oh blimey I can sign on I don't even have to sort of go and go to one of those restart interviews and I can sort of put down that I'm a writer or a musician for a year and that's fantastic so that 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 bizarrely gave a lot of people that ability to, um, yeah, just cre- you know create their art and certainly take drugs and then make more, yes. not, not make more. Yes, do all those things. Yeah, the two, <laughs> With, the two were often linked. I find. But the, the, yes, it was probably the best. Yeah, best music yeah. on drugs. But so, so as you were in the factory world, when did you start thinking I, I could actually stand up? Because that's quite a different thing. I always remember David Byrne saying, "If you're on the stage, you're very different to the person who's at the bar buying a drink, aren't you?" So there is that moment where you have to take the first step now was was that in a play or was it as as a stand-up well it was it was quite a long journey because initially when i was when i i quit the factory in 1990 and you're talking about doll life i I eventually went on the i I did nine straight years on the doll um and within that um the first couple of years i was in bands i played bass i still do play bass but i wanted to be a bass player um so i joined a few bands in norwich we're talking early 90s 93 1993 94 um you know and the bands did okay but they never really took off because you know you need a great songwriter or you just need luck and back then you know being in norfolk there wasn't soundcloud there wasn't the internet you could you know if, if somebody from london wanted to listen to your music you pretty much had to either send a tape into the middle of nowhere or or drive a van up to london and play in front of five people and hope someone was there so it got to about 1994 and i've been on the dole four years and i i was thinking i was always writing little ideas down and poems and stories and stuff like that and and still listening to comedy and i got my first i had actually had my first joke printed in private eye in 1985 I was reading Private Eye, and that was a big deal for me. I didn't get paid, but it was like to see my name in print was like, wow, 
there's something going on there. And I went to see Rick Mail and Ben Elton play the Britannia Theatre in 1985, and that that was just, it remains one of the funniest things I've ever seen. So there was this whole thing about being a performer, being, but I was far, I, I never ever thought I'd be an actor, I never thought I'd perform, I thought I'd either write or I'll be a bass player. And when the bass playing didn't, wasn't really going very well, um, in Norwich in 1994, Crude Apache had, been going the theatre company had been going about a year and a couple of my friends had been in plays and I'd been to see these plays and I thought well I can do that because the great thing about Crude Apache was that it was barring maybe a couple of semi-professional people it was entirely amateur it was literally people who'd never stood on stage before um, who in various ways could act couldn't act um, were just there and giving it a go and stepping up and, and so I got to know Simon Floyd who was in who was running Crude Apache and I went to a meeting and they said who wants to write a piece of pub theatre and I stuck my paw in the air and to this day I don't know why because I'd never in anything um, and I wrote this fairly shonky piece of pub theatre that helped Simon write another piece and in October 94 November November 94 was the first time I properly stepped on stage. Well, we were doing pubs, but step in front of an audience and tried to make them laugh. And I found that, you know, and I was very amateur then, I didn't really know what I was doing. But that some nights, if we weren't in a very aggressive pub where they hated us and they were chucking beer at us, some people would laugh. And then the following year, I uh, Simon said, well, do you want to help write the big summer show we're doing? And I said, yes. And he said, do you want to play the lead? And I said, yes. And that was really the beginning of me being a performer. Um, because I just loved it. I just found this confidence that I absolutely 100% did not have off stage. Yeah. Yeah. So was that Billy Blue Light? It it was, yeah, 1995. It was 25 years ago. It's just astonishing to think that that's how long ago that was. But being Billy Blue Light, which is quite, I mean, he was quite a kind of Oliver Twisty character in that he wasn't intrinsically funny himself. Everything happened to Billy. But it was just the idea of standing in front of certainly the Whiffler on a on the couple of nights there with you know six seven hundred people, and feeling fairly comfortable doing that. And the following year we did it again. We did another play, and I was funny. I you know I, I wrote my wrote myself. <laughs> That's how yeah. It's every man for himself. I wrote for myself a funny part, and this funny part really got laughs. And I think that was when I thought. Okay, I can make people laugh. I want to do it for a living. Yes. So that's ninety-five. So this was the John Major years. I like to make this make these points political. So yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's that's John Major years. We hadn't even uh, entered into New Labour. So when when did you and um, Owen? Owen, that's thanks. That's okay. <laughs> when did you when did you lock eye? When did you have that sort of Morrissey Ma moment where you know he, you knocked on the or he knocked on your door and said, "Let's do this." Um, it was well. We met doing um, Billy Blue Light. I think it was. Yeah, I think we met doing Billy Blue Light, and we just had a meeting of minds. We were very similar, sort of back then. You know, we were kind of. You know, we were both. Owen had just come up from London. He'd been living in London, and he trained at Lambda, and I was kind of just writing all the time. There was just ideas pouring at me, and we got on really, really well. And um, this was ninety five, ninety six, and. Um, I basically booked a venue very, very late at the Edinburgh Festival in 1997. I woke up in in April or May 1997, literally sat up in bed, and it was one of those moments of going, you've got to do this. You know, your life's kind of going nowhere. Yes, you've discovered theatre, but it's going nowhere. So I booked a venue, um, gave them a name in the show, 
um, which was Posh Spice Nude, which came off the top of my head. And uh, we were called the Nimmo Twins. That came off the top of my head. And we took the show up to Edinburgh in 97. I asked Owen if he wanted to come with me. I pretty much paid for it. I was on the dole at that point, so I pretty much sold everything I owned. I owned. Um, took out a loan from the DSS for a new cooker, <laughs> which they gave me 300 quid for, which paid for our flyers and bits and pieces. And we slept in a tiny flat that was miles. It was out in Corstafine, so it was miles away from uh, from the uh, from Edinburgh Centre. And we put on a show. Um, and we played to very few people in the first week or so. I mean, sometimes one or two people. And then one of those two people was the reviewer for the Scotsman who gave us four stars out of five. And boom, um, the show sold out. And we had a London agent uh, signed us up um, in the third week. And we were booked by BBC Television to be on the stand-up show in October 1997 and by loose ends to be you know, uh, regulars uh, the same week. So it all happened um very very quickly i mean really quickly i mean i was i was still cleaning toilets at that point and suddenly we were on bbc one on saturday night so you know it was crazy how quickly it all happened yes i i do remember interviewing fast eddie who was still sort of fixing or he was doing boat building and suddenly said look i've got to go i might be on top of the pops later yeah (laughs) and i probably won't come back on friday because i I think the career is about to happen so that was so so um (laughs) Yeah, so Dan Hammers and go. So when you wrote that that your your piece for that ninety seven um, show, did that mm. come together quite quickly? Because that's that's quite something to have that idea, and then mostly they're they're done in a in a haze of alcohol and and drugs, and then you wake up the next day and go, oh my god, that was a terrible idea. But you obviously woke up and said, no, let's do this. So when did you? How did you manage to write all your material and get that sorted? Um. What I remember of it, I mean, it's all a bit of a blur that 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 time. But I remember that I was literally writing. It was like you know that bit in a you know superhero movie when you discover you've got your powers for the first time. You know, Spider Man climbs up the walls and goes, "Oh my god, oh my god!" And that's often you know the nicest bit of a film where you go, "I've got this power." And for me, it was like I couldn't stop writing. As soon as I discovered it, I was literally writing 13, 14 hours a day. I'd write till five o'clock in the morning in a straight back wooden chair that crucified my back and uh, this crappy dot matrix printer that you know this guy that i was cleaning for gave me in this this very very early laptop that was the size of a a small family car that he gave me as well because uh, he said i want you you want to be a writer you can take this thing so i i type and type and type on this thing and print these scripts out and i'd had ideas all the time so i had about half an hour of kit before i booked the venue and then I, read, I wrote the rest very, very quickly. Myself and Owen previewed it at the Art Centre bar, and the previews went okay. And we took it up to Edinburgh. Um, my memory is that, you know, there was just loads of ideas. I mean, I look at it now, that show, um, you know, and five of those sketches ended up, ended up on television. You know, um, the same five had a shelf life of about another three or four years. They were performed on TV, radio. They were performed in the Singapore Comedy Festival. They were performed in Montreal. They were, you know, they were, they were, they were done, you know, the, you know, the, my first flush of stuff had enough in it. There was about five good sketches and about six that were fairly crap. But, you know, luckily people only remember the hits on the album. They don't remember the B-sides. Um my, my my memory is that it was written very quickly in a way that I, I don't have access to that kind of energetic now. I mean, writing for me now is it's, you know, it's an all day thing sometimes to, you know, eight hours to produce three or four lines that you think are any good. 
Um, but back then, I also because I didn't really have a filter, so you just go, well, that's good, that's good, that's good. Um, <laughs> whereas now, I mean, the more the, the more experience you have, the more critical you are, which you know in some ways is a good thing because it means you're not putting out rubbish but in a in a bad way. You think, oh, I miss those days where I just go, yeah, that's a good idea, you know, and write it in an hour. Yes. It's a bit like Prince. So look, so yeah. then in about 97, 98, we had um, Team Tony and New Labour. You you were then performing in Hayden, didn't you? You did a sort of... I some, did, yeah. A few gigs in the back of a pub in Hayden. So The Walpole Arms, yeah. The Walpole Arms. So by then, I didn't realise, because we came to see that show and that evening with people like Ian somebody. He was, he's a Scottish chap. Ian, Ian Bradley. Bradley, he was there. Yeah, lovely and, Ian Bradley. Uh, and... Uh, but they, I didn't realise that you, this was your really early years. I, I didn't, yes, by then you'd also seem so established. I know, we'd only been going um, a year. I mean, again, all that, I mean, that's a, that's a real bit of a blur, <laughs> that period. That was really messy. There was a lot going on then. Um, but we, um, the guy that owned the Walpole um, opened up a pub theatre in the back and said you know i think you know the scene said we'll come out and, and we played and and we had a, not a residency but i think we were out there for quite a while i remember a lot of gigs i've still got the flyers and things and it was a very different audience because it was a kind of north norfolk audience so you get quite an arty uh elspeth barker came i remember so that's how i met the barkers <laughs> um the Barkers are between, but Elspeth Barker would come and and you know she was very you know and still is you know literary giant and and would kind of critique the show and be very kind of intellectual with us and and it was lovely. It's a wonderful epoch. I I look back at that was it just felt like it was a permanent summer. That that time we were driving out doing the thing I loved, all the shows would be sold out. It was only a tiny little venue, but you know, and then you'd stand in the pub afterwards and have a drink and. It was great, yeah. But Hayden was Hayden was a really, really good time, and we did that for about I think a couple of years actually. Yes, I, I sort of can remember. But then the next time we saw you in the back of a pub around that time was you and Owen were performing a, an amazing piece where you were comedians backstage, and mm. you were the young alternative one, and and Owen played the bigoted fat one and yes. who was big in the 70s so where how did that because that must have been around 98 then or 99 yeah i think it was i mean again it's all again i was just writing stuff all the time the play was called i say i say i say i think or i say i say and again you know like a lot of my early stuff i probably i'd probably cringe to read it now it's a real curate's egg and underwritten overwritten wombling free and but again it was it was just at that point, you know, again, being so, you know, I thought, well, yeah, I'll write a play like it's an easy thing to do. And it's absolutely not an easy thing to do. But it was a, it was a one hour piece. Yeah. Set in a dressing room and it's the young comedian's first gig and it's the old comedian's comeback. And so there's these two kind of, you know, and then there's a tragic thing underneath where I think Owen's character's wife had died. And my it was partly, partly autobiographical with me where I talked about my dad dying. Um, or I talked about my dad, you know, my dad's illness. And that's how the two characters bonded, you know, and they discover, you know, they had more in common than they thought at the beginning. So it was it was one of those. Um, and it did OK. It had a lot of swearing in it, um, which it needed to. And the we were meant to play in Hayden because it was the Walpole Arms in Itchingham we played. And we were meant to play in Hayden. Because uh, they had a pub theatre, and the landlord um, got wind that, that there was a bit of effing and jeffing in it, and pulled the plug. 
And that's when the Walpole Arms hitching went, we'll put it on. We don't care about swearing. And that's what set our residency. So it was really foolish of um, the pub in Hayden because we brought so many punters into Itchingham. But that was why, that you've, you've reminded me, that's why we started playing in Itchingham because the play had swearing in it. The landlord at Hayden went, you're not performing here. I'm absolutely not having you perform here again. So we went to another bit of North Norfolk and um, gave them lots and lots of custom. So, yes. <laughs> I, I, yes, I can... I can... Remember, there was a lot of passion, wasn't there? A lot of passion. Yep. And then one of the greatest things that happened in Norwich was the Eurovision song, where you played the character of Lionel Strangely Brown. So when did that character develop? Um, well, the, the surname came from Blackadder. He was uh, uh, Strangely Brown, whose, whose name we've, we don't know, is one, of the, is one of the soldiers that dies, who's a friend of George's, where he goes through all his friends, and um, Strangely Brown, which I always thought was wonderful. It's, just, it's, a, it's a brilliant, brilliant comedy name. And I thought, oh, I'll have that. I'll borrow that off, um, off Ben. And um, I was, I think it started because the Crude Apache were doing something called the Crude Apache event at Norwich Arts Centre, which would be a a big evening where loads of different performances in the main hall, literally the toilets, the bar, upstairs at the bar, wherever, every cranny, there'd be somebody performing. And I was the compare in the bar. They were looking for a compare character. And I had I found this wig, which was off a, a shop mannequin, this black stiff wig and a green frilly shirt and a waistcoat and a moustache. And uh, he just needed to be colossally rude. So it was a way for me to slag everyone else off in the, sh in the show, but say, oh, it's the character that just thinks you're all rubbish. So Lionel Strangely Brown was, was very popular for about two or three years. And then, yeah, he sort of just disappeared. But he was just permanently drunk and he had a voice like that. And he was getting divorced from his wife called Susan. And that's what I remember of Lionel, that he was always just... All these disasters would happen to him, and he would just slag everybody off. It was joyous. I don't know why I stopped doing that actually, but it was um, it was uh, that's that's how Lionel came along. And did you have much to do with the Eurovision song um, event? No, that I mean, Karen Riley and, and John Baker were the, were the were the driving force behind that. The, the, the real geniuses they were. I mean, they put the whole show together and and you know encouraged the the, the people that were writing the songs. So I mean, the, the the logistics of it were enormous. And I came back from Edinburgh '97, so in early September, and I was approached by Karen, who said, "Well, we're doing this um, show. We need a compare." And I had something like again a week to write it so i wrote the whole i wrote all the links without having seen any of the songs and not knowing what was going on so the second half was fairly improvised the judging bit but the first half was you know good evening and you know i talk about the french entry and how crap they were and you know make jokes about you know it was quite quite xenophobic i remember i think it was good borderline racist um but yeah, they would. I came in at the very last minute. I mean, so much. I mean, months and months and months of work had been done on the visuals and the videos and stuff. It was it was a real privilege. It's, it remains one of my favourite things that I've ever been involved in because my part and it was relatively small. It was important, but it was relatively small in terms of I didn't have to take on the weight of the of the production and and the show was a massive success for the two nights. We did it at the talk, and it was rammed. I remember and. Um, that was another thing where I just thought everything at that point, everything I, that I touched turned to gold. And and um, and also just, you know, all these opportunities kept coming where people go, well, do you want to do this? It's like, yeah, OK. Yes. Whereas now I'd spend like I'd, I'd fret for months about the script over that, you know. But. 
what they know. But so, so having done so many interviews with bands, they have a five-year narrative. You know, they get together, things go well. John Peel plays it. They get a session. John Peel session. The first album good. Second album <coughs> can be tricky. Um, you know things. So how did you? How does the sort of life of the the sort of actor comedian sort of continue into the into the next decade? Because obviously, a bit like Team Tony, you have that honeymoon phase where everything, yeah. like you said, touch is gold, and then you think there's existential moments that happen. So what what follows into the noughties? Well, um, ninety seven was our first show. And we got signed and we did the TV bit. Da, da, da. And 98, we had to come back with a, with another show in a bigger venue. So we were playing the Pleasance upstairs. And I wrote a show called Charged and Sentence, which probably remains the, the best hour of comedy I'd probably ever written. It was, every sketch in it was just, I just, you know, it was massive and it landed. And we, we, I, we previewed it in London for six weeks. Every week we'd come up and play previews that were really, really hard. But we, we, we honed the show. And we opened in Edinburgh, and within the first nine days, we got a five-star review of The Guardian and a five-star review of uh, The Scotsman. So we were set for the festival. I mean, we were sold out. You couldn't get a ticket. Um, you know, and there was whiffs of Perrier. Perrier came to see us a lot, and we thought, oh, well, we're going to get a nomination. And that show really just catapulted us again because that's when, you know, we were booked to play Singapore Comedy Festival off the back of it. We got more loose ends gigs. We've got more, you know, gigs around the country. I got writing gigs off the back of it corporates owen got lots of adverts so owen was in adverts for day you cars flora oh uh, adams wasn't it Ad- adams we did together yeah oh. adams we did together it was a bit later we did adams in about 99 2000 but at that point owen was just every time i turned on the tv i'd be sweating over scripts at one o'clock in the morning i'll turn on the tv and there was owen owning thousands by you know pretending to eat a bacon sarnie on the beach for ikea um so he got loads of work off the back of that and then 99 was a real struggle because 98 I got so much work offered to me and uh, I you know I didn't know how how, or my agent didn't know how to say no and also you think well I better keep saying yes because you don't know when it's going to stop and I was overstretched and the 99 show wasn't very good at all it was I'd written it under pressure and also we'd taken on a third member um, to try and flesh out the show and uh, a guy called Andrew, who's a very, very lovely guy and is a, is a fine actor, but it just didn't work. It didn't gel, and it added to our woes in Edinburgh. Um, and it sort of um, – it didn't grind to a halt, but, you know, we were still getting lots of radio stuff, but it, it, it knocked the momentum. We got three-star reviews for the show, and I knew it was a three-star show. I knew it wasn't very good. But Radio 4 commissioned a series off me, which is called The Nimmo Twins Inn. And, again – I didn't really have enough time to write it. And I didn't really know what I was doing. I mean, I think a lot of people think that when you get commissioned to write a series or a sitcom or whatever, that you're taken into this room with producers and they show you this film on how to do it and you're given lots of advice. And that wasn't the case. I got commissioned and they went, well, we'll see you in July with the script. Bye-bye. And the show was a bit of a curate's egg again. You know, it had a couple of, yeah, two or three good episodes, but some that were just underwritten and overwritten and, and Radio 4 didn't like it very, very much. It didn't do terribly well. Um, so we we went into 2000 um, sort of making a decision, which was um, – well, I, I made a decision, which was – I was living in London at that point. I was in Norwich. And in 2000, 2001, I decided to become a stand-up comedian. So that was really what took me into the noughties. Um and I, be, I started doing stand-up, and within six months, I'd won the Daily Telegraph Open Mic Award, 
which was looking for the best new comedians in Britain. And I'd won that, um, which was amazing. Um, and that meant that I got to play Montreal and it meant that I got to play Melbourne and it meant that I went back to Edinburgh as a stand-up. So yeah, that's how we got into the beginning of the noughties. It's, it was all a bit of a, a bit of a mess, but out of that mess of 99, I, I became a kind of, I think, oh, sod it, I'll give stand-up a go. Yeah. Go, Look at it now thinking, what the hell are you thinking? <laughs> stand-up's <laughs> horrible. Yeah, so so had that so had you and Owen at that stage slightly sort of gone your separate ways? No, not at all. We were still doing. I think we made we sort of looked at one another. We did a pilot TV show for Mentor. Um, I think around about the same time, maybe about ninety eight, ninety nine. I can't quite remember. And again, like everything else at that time, it hadn't had enough time. It suffered. It wasn't very good. And we didn't get picked up by, I think we were Channel 4 after us at that point, and we didn't, you know. And I kind of knew. I knew that whatever, we weren't ready or that it wasn't ready or that I didn't have it, whatever it was, it just wasn't right at that point. So I made a kind of decision. We made a decision um, because Owen had had a child at that point. Owen had a young daughter. And I was living in London. It's like, well, do you know what? We can keep chasing this grail and going up to Edinburgh and trying to break through. Or we can, you know, do acting work separately, do do little bits and pieces, but let's make the show about Norfolk. What happens if the normal for Norfolk shows, which had started in, you know, um, 96, 97, um, what happens if you, I concentrate, I put all the energetic into those? Because it was becoming, you know, Owen, Owen and myself were living quite separate lives and it was like, you know, it's a lot of effort to keep coming up to Edinburgh. It's a lot of effort to keep going up to London to do stuff. So we just made a decision that it would be nicer and more conducive just to perform in, in uh, Norfolk. And that's where the real, you know, the, the, the North Norfolk shows got better and better and better. Yes. So when did, because I, I sort of came to quite a lot of those ones at the Playhouse. Was that about, Jesus Christ, was it about 2002? When did they start? First Playhouse, the first Playhouse was 97, I think, 97 or 98. Certainly it wasn't 99. So it's, we've been, at, we've been at the Playhouse for about 22, 23 years, um, which is, again, mind-blowing to think about that. But we started off with one night. I never thought we'd sell it out because we had been playing the Art Centre Bar and the Matter Market Bar. We'd never actually played a theatre with Norfolk Norfolk. And then we were approached to do the Playhouse, and we sold it out. And that was one night. And the following year we did two. Then we did four, then we did eight, then suddenly it was 16 and, you know, then you're doing 20. And then we were doing the, by the time we hit the mid-noughties, 2005, 2006, 2007, um, we were doing a month, a month-long residency. We were there for like 26, 27 nights in a row. Um, so that was really sort of going, that was the birth of Normal for Norfolk being, you know, instead of it being like a side dish to my, to our national career, we went, well, I don't think we were going to have a national career or we haven't really got the energy, but what we do have the energy to do is, is write something that's, um, that's just about Norfolk. And I wonder what will happen if we did that. And, you know, wow, I never, never anticipated it would, you know, I thought if we do, if we can make enough money to, you know, buy a few pints of beer and a new pair of jeans, then we're probably doing all right. I never expected it to kind of go where it's gone. Do you have a love-hate relationship with it? Because I get the feeling with Steve Coogan and Alan Partridge, he was thinking, right, I'm going to move on. Nope, I'm coming back to Alan Partridge. Do you yeah. do you ever sort of have that, did you ever have that kind of feeling with normal for Norfolk and, and sort of thinking, oh God, this one just works every time? 
Um, I think I probably did. There was periods where I was a bit messed up. I mean, certainly in the, um, uh, which I talked about when I did sort of biography. I mean, uh, between about 99, 99 and 2003, I mean, I was fairly off the rails um, in terms of, you know, just being off my face and, and not very happy because I was I was thinking well if I become successful enough I'll feel better enough I'll feel better inside because a lot had happened to me in my childhood and I thought well you know if I just get here if I just get there if I just win this if we just get this job and of course it doesn't happen so I started to resent I resented the whole thing and the shows in there are there are some you know there's comedy and stuff I wrote um that i'm not very happy about because i didn't realize how angry i was um at that time and that wasn't wasn't just the norfolk stuff that was just general stuff but yeah i mean did i was it love hate um there might have been a year or two where i thought well i'm you know this is just a stopgap before obviously i get my oscar (laughs) but not now really because the amount of work and the amount of love i put into the writing um uh I'm, you know, it, it, it doesn't feel, oh, I've got to do this thing again. It feels like the, the level of laughter and the level of joy and delight and love, genuine love that we get from the audience and, and how excited they are about the shows is something that I imagine a lot of national comics would find hard to replicate. I've been to a lot of comedy shows in my life. I've been in a lot of audiences. I haven't been in a lot of audiences where people laugh as much as they laugh at us when they're really, really laughing. So I'm aware that it's touching something that's really lovely and really special and shouldn't be taken for granted. 2004, 2005 for me is is a really old, it's a messy old time. My life was kind of, um, yeah, I was just, I was just cross and I was angry and I was unhappy and I didn't even know the problem was I didn't know why. Um, and it was permeating everything. I was also doing a newspaper column for the Evening News. And some of those, I look at and think, Christ almighty, how did they publish that? Um, because it was just really, you know, some of it was really narky. And, and some of them were good. Some of them were really funny. And some of them were sweet. But some of them I look back on and, you know, it's, I kind of want to go back and give myself a hug and just go step away from the typewriter, man, because... <laughs> You know, you you really need to you need to kind of go and sort yourself out. I was kind of, um, yeah. I mean, I was I was drinking a lot, and I was, um, um, yeah, just a bit. I wasn't very happy. Bottom line is, wasn't very happy. And when you're not very happy, it's not it's not a very good engine room for comedy. You can be depressed and write good comedy. You can be anxious and write good comedy. But if you're genuinely just unhappy or bitter, then it comes out in your work. And you know, audiences don't want that, and people reading. Newspaper columns don't want to hear that, and people listening to podcasts don't want to hear that. So, I've locked away all those scripts and all those bits and pieces from that period in a in a little box, and just go, okay, that was then. <laughs> you don't need to, you don't need to look at that anymore. Yes, well, absolutely. And then, I mean, obviously, you you know, there was there's ups and downs, but then you had a bit of a shock because you were just about to perform. Was it normal for Norfolk? And then you got beaten up one night, which must have been one of the biggest shocks of your life. Yeah, that was 2007. So um, that was still part of a kind of, you know, round about that time I was still a bit, I mean, it was still a bit messy. I mean, I, I basically lived in the Playhouse bar for about five years. I and mean, that's not a joke. Um, it was five minutes from my house and I was there every day. And I just, God, I was just 
partying all the time. Parties back at mine. And um, we were doing, I think it was normal for Norfolk, nine or 10, it was 2007. And we were halfway through the run. We were doing an 18, 20 night run, something like that. And it was Friday the 13th. There you go. And I left having done the show, um, left late, far later than I should have done. It was about midnight, 12.15. It was freezing cold, and I took a, a shortcut, which I've never taken before and obviously I haven't taken since, um, down by, uh, to walk along the river by the, old, the nurse's accommodation that's by the river, just to kind of cut across the Oak Street, because it was so cold. I thought, I'll just quickly hurry home. It's freezing. And didn't think there'd be anybody about. And I walked down these steps, and there was three people, two guys and a girl, and these guys just took one look at me and went, right. And, uh, yeah, just beat me up. I mean, really properly, properly messed me up. Uh, but they didn't rob me. I think I had money on me. I had my bag on me. I had all bits. They didn't rob me. They just absolutely pasted me. And there was rumours that, oh, I defended someone at the show or I defended someone in the column, and I'm such a loud mouth that obviously someone's <laughs> – someone's taken umbrage but it wasn't at all it was just you know they, they had no way they would have no idea that i would ever walk down that alex i'd never done it before they were just they looked off their faces certainly the guy did he was he was literally frothing at the mouth and he just kicked my head in i mean he, he, i got a fractured skull a broken eye socket and a broken arm and um, was very very badly concussed and nearly lost my right eye and my right eye is still a bit weird in my head my it's uh, it goes back about two or three millimeters further than the other eye. So in photos, my eyelid is a little bit chunky. It's a little bit lower than the other. But I was very lucky because, um, you know, it doesn't take many kicks to the head to kill you. And uh, I managed to get home and um, eventually get to hospital. Yeah, that was a real shock. But what that brought out was um, just all these, you know, inordinate amount of cards from well wishes and people I'd never met, and and that was really the beginning of me sorting myself out because I was just wearing blinkers and thinking, well, what I do doesn't matter, and my you know my career is not really very exciting, and I'm unhappy, da 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 da. And all these cards came, and all this, and then we we came back to do, redo the show in January, and the love from the audience was incredible. So. I took one look at my life and went, right, you're 37, 36, 37. You know, there's still time. Go back to London. Give it a go. Have a swing at being the writer that you want to be. And, um, you know, if it doesn't work out, come back. And if it does work out, you know, at least you're not going to die wondering. So I moved, I moved to London six months after the attack. And partly because, to be brutally honest, for about a year, year and a half, I didn't feel safe in Norwich. Um, if I was walking down the street alone I, 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 and I heard footsteps behind me or voices behind me or drunken voices, that particular kind of male, you know, bellowing, I'd, I'd get very panicky. And I thought, you know what, I'd, I'd, uh, I think actually I'm safer in London right now than I am in Norfolk. So I left. Yes, absolutely. And sort of, um, you know, with comedy, I was listening to Stuart Lee giving great detail about sort of, com- well, a certain amount of comedy. And he was... And I suppose looking at the latest political period in life, and he was just, I suppose, sort of as a writer saying that, you know, it's always the thing of um, what makes a good comedy is kind of writing in a way that if you're going to not attack, but, you you know, you need to sort of... I mean, I suppose he was talking about how the sort of the current political time has changed because kind of, I suppose, liberalism has been sort of attacked for decades, hasn't it? And, sure. And then slowly it's been chiselled away until you know, it's gone completely the other way. I mean, with with your sort of 
you know, writing, are you sort of conscious of all those kind of ideas and theories that you... I was thinking it can be quite difficult if, you, you know, from what you said at the early days where you just kind of wrote everything at 100 miles an hour and then just performed it, then you start to sort of analyse comedy and you start sort of realising the mechanics of it and what works and what doesn't and what you should do and what you shouldn't do. And you think, well, I, I shouldn't really make jokes about that kind of group of people because they're, sure. they're, not, they're not able to stand up for themselves, so I need to attack others. So, you know, yeah. that, that whole world of you know, PC, you know, that, that that overused and slightly bizarre kind of idea that, you know, oh, it's all gone politically correct and, you know, and, mm. and all that kind of stuff has just been chiselled for, for decades. And I just wondered how that, you know, with maturity, how you've dealt with all those kind of aspects of, you know, finding yourself in an ang ang existential angst at times writing stuff. Um, it's a really good question. And I've had to find my own path through it. I mean, I, I, like many comedians and many writers, um, political correctness is a double-edged sword because I think there is a danger um, on both right and left. They both they both scream as loud as one another, really. That um, you can chuck the baby out with the bathwater. Um, and yes, you know we you want to protect minorities and you don't want to have the language that we used that was used in the 1970s and 80s and it was 1970s in comedy, you know, um, racial epithets and stuff like that. But there is a kind of, there can be a kind of hysteria around um, uh, censorship and people going, I'm offended, I'm offended. And I, I, I don't know, I can't, I'm not smart enough to find the path through that. I, I can't, I can't verbalize it in a way that is going to make complete sense as, oh, this is the path we should take. The path I take now is, can I finish a show? Can I do a show and look people in the eye afterwards? Um, you know, about the jokes I've told. And that probably wasn't the case in the early days uh, where getting laugh was everything. And also because I felt lower than, you know, I thought, well, I'm at the bottom of the food chain anyway, so I'm always kicking up. And you realise you're not always kicking up, sometimes you're kicking down. So my thing is now I go through the scripts really carefully and can I stand on stage and be comfortable with what I'm saying. And that's a personal thing. And a lot of that is self-protection. I talked about this in an interview I did with EDP, which was that with the rise of social media and Twitter, you know, you can get, by the interval, you can have people going, I'm, just, I'm watching Carl Mintz and he said this terrible thing about so-and-so and so-and-so. And suddenly, by the time you come on stage, you've been dogpiled and retweeted by hundreds of people going, yeah, I always thought he was horrendous and he does this. So a lot of it is... Um, for me, is protecting my mental health. I don't want to expose myself to um, the kind of ill-thought-out, um, reactionary <laughs> responses of people that don't understand jokes properly. Um, so I, I've decided to kind of cut certain stuff from my show and you know uh, and shape the show to make myself comfortable. Now that could be a bit of a cop out seeing well you know you're letting them win. Maybe I am, you know, but it's a small thing and to be honest, you know, my my mental health is more important than than getting all the laughs maybe I want or feel that I could get. And as for the political stuff, I mean the Overton window has shifted to the right a great deal. You're right. I mean God, I mean look at Trump, look at who we've got in power here and and it's you know the that's a response, I guess, to liberalism and a, and a response to what they would see as, you know, a PC kind of environment where you can't say anything. But that's nonsense. I think, you know, the fact is when people say you can't say anything nowadays, the best question to ask them is, what is it you want to say? 
and they never tell you because really often what it is is they want to use all the words that their grandfathers and their fathers used to describe gay people and people of minorities and they want to, be able to use those words freely and rightly so they can't and instead of embracing that there's probably a resentment around it but um they never say that they go well you just can't say anything nowadays of course you can say whatever you like the difference is now because of social media and because of the world we live in people will pop up and, and say i you know you shouldn't say that and i think it's wrong that you're saying that and uh, so it's not that they can't say it it's the fact that now there's a there's a there's a right of reply um but yeah i mean it's changed my comedy i, I definitely as i said looking back at stuff from 15 years ago there's there's jokes I wouldn't wouldn't come within a hundred yards of a show now, not because they were racist or they were they were necessarily sexist or whatever they they you know whatever ist you want to maybe put on they weren't they were just coming for me they were coming from an energy that was dark and angry and bitter and as I said I just don't want I don't want the comedy to be about that so that's been the real change for me it's been more personal than political but the political outside of it has shaped the personal there you go. Yes, I got it. That's good. I mean, because one of, <laughs> well, it's interesting because there was a cut. There was one. I remember there was one brilliant one which I thought you'd still do, which was there was that Tony Martin one, which was quite epic. Now is that yeah. one? Would you still perform that one? Say, well, the, I know the one you're talking about. That was probably the unhappiest show I ever wrote, which is 2004. Um, the 2004 Nimo show. I was in a probably the worst place. I, I wasn't in any any kind of state to watch comedy let alone be writing and performing it i was i i was coming out of a breakup of a really a really nasty breakup that happened just before i came up to do the show so i was a complete basket case and i was halfway through writing this musical it was called tony martin the musical which was meant to be the big finale of the show and i just couldn't quite get it together and owen can't sing so he was struggling with it and so oh, the whole thing was a real... I look at... I actually found the scripts of that quite recently. And the songs themselves are really funny. And the the because it goes from Martin's point of view and, and Fred Barris, who was the, the guy that he shot. And, and it was funny, but it was funny. It had a point to it. It was the first, probably the probably the first bit I'd written that, that had a kind of message, I guess, in it. But would I do it now? Yeah. I mean, if Tony Martin... Say for example, if the Tony Martin shoot, shooting had happened this had happened this year, I one hundred percent absolutely would have it in normal for Norfolk or in the She Go show, because you would be remiss to not talk about it, and you can find a way through that. You can you can joke about anything. You can joke about anything. It's the kind of jokes that you that you maybe have to think about, but you can absolutely joke about anything. Um, so yes, I mean the the Tony Martin thing. I would do again, or if there was a similar thing that happened, I'd absolutely do it again because it's ripe. There's so much in it. There's so much about Norfolk attitudes. There's attitudes to crime. There's attitudes to gypsies and minorities. There's the whole insularity of Norfolk in it. He was a very eccentric character. Um, you know, it's he's he was a rich comic vein in what was a very messy and tragic story yeah so what would you say to an 18 year old self starting out in in probably one of their more difficult careers um i mean it's i think it has to be a passion i was always i loved comedy i was a fan of comedy if you're a fan of comedy you know give it a go if that's if, if it's something that you feel you can do then the advice i would give is 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 you've got to dedicate yourself to it um i've you know the 10 the whole ten thousand hours thing 
to become good at something is absolutely true. Um, I, I easily did that probably within the first two years, if not before. I was just that's all I did was sit and write and sit and study, and you know, wrote, wrote, wrote. A lot of it was rubbish. Um, so yeah, I mean, like anything, dedicate yourself to it. Be passionate about it. Um, you won't find your voice straight away. You'll sound like all the people you love, and that's okay. Um, we all do. And bit by bit, that'll fall away, and, and the real you'll be underneath. And, you know, if you manage to make a career out of it, um, as I said, you know, if you find a job you love, you never do a day's work again. And um, that's there's there's some truth in that. So, yes, yes go go for it. If you're funny, I, I'm going to name drop Clang here. I, never, I went to see Spike Milligan in 1997 do a, a Q&A. And I asked him a question from the audience, and I'd, I'd been writing a year or two then, and I said, what advice would you give a young comedy writer? And he went, keep going. If you're funny, you'll make it. If you're not, you won't. And it remains the best advice I've ever been given. Yes, that is true. That is, yeah, that is, um, yeah, because, God, I just remember you did a whole series in the Belgian Monk, didn't you, as well? That was another. We did, yeah. With Fiona we, somebody. God. Fiona Mitchell, God rest her soul, yeah. Fiona Mitchell um, uh, was performing. Uh, we did um, we did the Belgium and we played everywhere. We started at Hector's house. We played a lot of places. The Arts Centre, the Arts Centre Bar, the Madden Market. You know, Stage Two, the old the old Stage Two Theatre Royal. You know, I think the only place we have in the Nimos haven't performed in Norwich is probably the Sewell Barn, and that's because it's a bugger to perform in a sort of three sided theatre. Um, but yeah, I mean, we back then we performed, and back then there wasn't any comedy. There wasn't really comedy. Now you can barely walk past the pub in Norwich without someone thrusting a mic in your hand and asking you to do a tight ten minutes. But but back then there was no there was literally no comedy. So we'd have to book a venue, you know, get a PA and, and put it on. Um, whereas now, if you're especially if you want to do stand up, I mean, you know, it's brilliant. There's loads of there's loads of open mic nights and and people putting on nights for you know for people to learn their trade and you know, there's lots of lots of young people doing it, which is great. Yes, and just lastly, I mean, you're you're you know you did a show last year, didn't you? With which was much more about confessional. So yeah. How did that feel with you? Because again, going back to Stuart Lee, I remember him talk about wearing a mask, you know, with you know performing, and obviously that does help a huge lot. So how does it kind of, what's it like when you're not wearing the mask and you're actually exposing yourself on stage? Um, I was really nervous about it because it was the first time I'd done anything where I wasn't playing a character, but actually it was incredibly liberating and it was the right time. I I wanted to talk about my childhood because my childhood really was very, very messy and in, in parts quite extreme. And it, it's obviously shaped massively who I am. The good stuff. And also the bad stuff, the kind of anxiety and the propensity to, you know, catastrophize and, you know, the occasional depressions and the dark moods and stuff. So I figured, well, do you know what? Maybe one, it's going to be healthy for me to finally go, by the way, this thing happened to me and it's a bit crazy. And also to encourage people on a smaller level to open up about their mental health issues. And that was really what the best thing. I mean, one, the show got a really lovely reaction, which was great, but it also you know, the emails I got from people and messages were people saying um, your show resonated with me because I had a very similar time. It wasn't, of course, the same kind of same kind of things, but, you know, parallels and, and stuff that they recognized. And it gave them hope and it gave them a sense of support that they weren't the only ones. And their emails gave me a sense of support that I wasn't the only one, because when you have a when you're in a bad space in your head or you come from a tough background, 
that you're maybe, uh, and it is probably the right word, you're probably a, a bit ashamed of, um, it can feel like a real burden. So to unburden it and unburden it and make it funny and unburden it and make it positive um, was a huge step for me as a performer. And that paved the way in many ways for me to decide to do the She Go Solo show, um, which was, well, if I can do this as myself, maybe can I do an hour of straight comedy or a couple of hours of straight comedy? And all of these things were just about challenging myself. I've been writing comedy now for, you know, two and a half decades. And, you know, the Nimos is there if I want to do it. And, you know, but the Nimos is a big, is a big old bugger to, to put together. It's a lot of work and a lot of rehearsal with Owen and with, whereas I thought, well, maybe I could do something a bit more nimble in the meantime. Um, so doing sort of biography, um, and the response and also the confidence of being on stage totally on my own for two hours. Well, do you know what? There's part of this. Let's give this a go. You know, you've got to keep, you know, you've got to keep challenging yourself a little bit. Otherwise, you know, you get a bit stale and, and she go for now is kind of, has kind of reawakened my interest and my love in standing on stage and just, you know, doing comedy on my own, which I haven't done since I gave up stand up comedy, which was back in, Bloody hell, 2003. So to walk on stage alone and make people laugh for two hours is, it's, um, yeah, it's a, it's a good thing. Yes. And just, um, I mean, because a couple of years ago, I went to see Ruby Wax, mostly talking about her mental health. Did you also sort of go, oh, blimey, I remember Ruby Wax in the 80s or 90s. And I didn't realise her, she had this other story and then she went to university and studied about depression. Did you also kind of just, I was just kind of curious, did you also go and listen to what she had to say about how she coped with her life? Because I, I've never actually seen her shows. I, I think I might have read one of her books or certainly seen the stuff on TV. And I know obviously she's been very open about it. I just think generally for me, I mean, I did, I'd done a lot of, you know, the cliche, I'd done a lot of therapy and I'd done a lot of unloading of stuff and confessing of stuff that I hadn't really done before. So, and also, you know, we, we live, thank God now in an environment where uh, to talk about those kind of things is encouraged and also has an audience and also has a, you know, is necessary. So I couldn't have done it before I'd done it. I would have, it would have been too messy. And, and you, because what you can't use it as, as a, ther is a therapy session. You have to have worked it out and parked it and understood it and accepted it as much as possible before you step on stage and talk about it. Because otherwise, you know, audiences haven't paid 15 20 quid to be your therapist for you to kind of melt down and go and then this happened and then this happened they want to see some resolution or some uh redemption or some positivity to come out of of your blackness they don't just want to you know they don't just want to hear your um your dark stuff and performers that do that i don't have a lot of time for i have to say yes because just lastly, I mean, it's quite interesting because my I suppose two comedians or, or comics that I loved was, was Phil Silvers in Bilko and Leonard oh, Rossiter cool. in Rise and Damp and also Reggie. And it's kind of interesting. They were both characters, I noticed, who were always, who'd always lose, didn't they? You know, yep. and I just wondered if if you also, when you perform those people, you have to never win. It, it, um, if that makes sense, you know, with Phil Silvers in Bilko, he always would lose, wouldn't he? Yeah. And and, and sort of the same with uh, in Rise and Damp as well, Leonard Rossiter. So is is that sort of something that you were aware of when you were doing that stand up? Because you were talking about resolution, weren't you? Sort of. Yeah. The audience wants a re resolution. They don't. They don't want it to be too good, though, do they? I mean, no. I mean, I, I don't think. I mean, the resolution of, of sort of biography was a confession that you know I'm still messed up, but I'm doing my best. 
you know, and I've still got this and I'm still a bit, you know, I'm still a bit crazy over here and I can go a bit mental over there and this. And if it's, I mean, with characters, I mean, interestingly, you know, Phil Silver's character is quite rare in American um, comedy because the whole thing about American comedy is that they tend to be winners or they tend to be quite positive people. And it's, it's the British that are kind of characters that are self-loathing failures, whether they're Basil Fawlty or Arthur Lowe and his mannering or, you know, as said, Reggie or, you know, or Rigsby even. Um, yeah, I think if you're playing a character, if I'm doing something like She Go, I'm doing Billy Boy, and those, they they succeed within the confines of their small worlds, and they fail within, but they fail probably within the great scheme of things. I mean, She Go, I think, is a very positive character now. She's totally self reliant. She has no shame about being sexual. She has no shame about being a woman. She's very body positive. You know, and Shigo is a very good representation of where I am now in that she's somebody that has been through a great deal, comes from a background of poverty and is absolutely doing her best. But if you're playing, if you're being yourself on stage, yes, that resolution. Yeah, I mean, I don't think you can be poly, Pollyanna-ish because I think for the simple reason that no one's life actually is. Life is difficult. Life is messy. Life is cruel. It's cold. It's unhappy. It's full of shocks. Look at where we are now. Look at all of us. We're all suffering in our own way going through this lockdown. Um, but the great thing is that's where comedy lies. <laughs> yes, this is true. Look, well, this is brilliant, Carl. Thank you for that. It's that, okay. That's been amazing. And um, I'll tell you when I put it out. Is that okay? Yeah, sure. Okay, sure. That would be um, brilliant. Well, thank you ever so much. And yeah, I'd sort of halfway just towards the end, I was thinking, oh, yes, the Belgian monk. I'd forgot that. I'd, yeah. I kept one of those flies. And yes, dear old Fiona, she was just. Uh, yeah. Oh, bless her. Yeah, she was amazing. She's 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 dearly missed. I, I That was a real shock. It was just before we went to Edinburgh in 99, actually. Yes, because she like, did. Yeah. There was another show at the Art Centre and she played some sort of bondage, not bondage. Um, some... She did Madame Whiplash, I think it was, or something very similar to that. She had. Um, a lot of the a lot of the men, including myself, involved in crude Apache at the time, were very smitten by her. We were smitten by her anyway because she was an absolute delight and creative and unbelievably talented. But we were very smitten her during that show because I do think that she had, she may have had thigh length patent leather boots on and a whip, uh, if memory serves. Uh, yeah, God bless her. She's. Uh, oh, I wish. I wish she was around. I wish she was alive. It's. Um, yeah. Well. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. She's, she's, she's deeply, deeply missed. I know. Amazing. Anyway, look, take care. And um, yes, I'll keep vaguely in touch. But that's brilliant. Thanks ever so much for this. That's and, okay, David. You made it very easy. I hope there's, there's stuff in there you can use, mate. Yeah, no problem. Take care. And uh, yeah, see you, see you somewhere. See you anon. Take, take care. Bye bye. Bye bye. And that was me in conversation with the writer and comedian Carl Minns talking about life, love, poetry and everything else in between. This has been David Eastall. Thank you ever so much for listening. If you still are, you need a a medal because it's a miracle. Anyway, look, if you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. You can just do at C86show. And also I have a podcast, all these Um, shows I've been doing over the last three, four years. Uh, You can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, and uh, yes, check them out if you've, uh, you've got nothing better to do. Anyway, stay safe, have a great week.